works. Um, it was going to happen. I was going to cry at some point, and it happened early, so it's good. Um, I'm so glad to be here with you all. Um, the scripture passage for this morning is 1 John uh, starting in verse 5 of chapter 1. You can find it on your pew Bibles in front of you on page 1021. Um, 1021 is the page in the pew Bible. Um, let me make sure. Yes, 1021. Uh, the reason we're going to be looking at this passage and just kind of parachuting into First John is... All throughout this semester at our RUF large group meetings, which are on Tuesday night in Cameron Hall, room 105. Uh, hopefully it'll be there again if the university lets us rent that room. That'll be really great. Uh, maybe you all know someone who's a professor in the business school. Maybe they can help us I'm looking in this area. Dr. Watson, thank you very much. Um, but uh, so we meet and we have really an evangelistic worship service. Uh, it's uh, a worship service where there's singing, uh, there's prayer, and there's preaching. I, I preach through a series each semester on a, a portion of God's Word. We did uh, Galatians last year, and um, uh, we're going to be doing a kind of survey of all of redemptive history this this year. But what we try to do is we try to form students who are unfamiliar with the historic Christian gospel in the rhythms and patterns of Christian worship. So even if you're skeptical, even if you're unfamiliar, that uh, by being a part of RUF, that um, the gospel would become more plausible to you. And membership in a believing gospel-centered church would become more plausible and more beautiful to you. Uh, and so we do um, a confession each week, a corporate confession in our meetings, and we do an assurance of pardon, just like Joseph let us in here. And we do that because it, uh, it, what we tell our students all the time is, you go around every single day basically pretending to everyone like you've never screwed up. Or if you did, that was like a long time ago in the past, and you're crushing it, and we only ever show the best parts of ourselves to each other, especially online. And meanwhile, our insides are racked with doubt and fear and regret, things we've said or done that we, uh, that we feel guilty about, that we're ashamed of. And one of the things that Christian worship invites us to do, because God is gracious and holy and he knows what's good for us, is he invites us to unburden ourselves both privately and publicly, to say in front of other people, I don't know what I'm doing sometimes, and I'm scared, and I've screwed up. And to normalize that for everyone is a really beautiful thing. So we do that every single week, and a passage that we usually use is 1 John 1, uh, where it says, uh, you'll see, it, you know, it talks about confession of sin and God's response to our confession, but that's not the part that I'm interested in. That's not the part that I wanted to preach on this summer. The part that I never get to talk about in REF Large Group is the final sentence of this passage that we're about to read. It fa has fascinated me, it's perplexed me, and it, I, I, I just think it's one of the most beautiful sentences in all of the New Testament. So uh, hopefully you'll think that too. But it's on page 1021 of uh, your pew Bibles, 1 John, starting in chapter 1. If you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? 
1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This is it. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You may be seated. Gracious Father, would you open our ears to hear your word? Would you open our hearts to receive your word? Would you open our hands and empower them to be able to live differently and to do good because of the word that you've planted in us? Would it bear fruit today? Would you help me to proclaim it faithfully, Father, as I know I should? We're dependent upon you. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Um, there's a book that I've been reading this summer by a guy named Alan Jacobs, who's a professor at Baylor University. And uh, it's called How to Think. And it's a, it, it's a book about... Uh, basically how to think rightly, how to think clearly, how to avoid, um, you know, prejudice and error and kind of conspiracy theory and stuff like that. And, and it, it's about how, our, how, you know, how we come to understand and rely on truth and apprehend truth. It's a great book. And the best thing I can say about it is it's a short book. <laughs> so <laughs> highly recommend. It's really, really good. Uh, but one of the things he says in the book is that there's no such thing as an independent thinker. Sometimes uh, teachers say that, you know, they say, you know, a student comes into a classroom and they say, hey, I really want you to learn to become an independent thinker. And what they mean is, I want you to stop thinking like the people that you grew up around. And I want you to start thinking like me and the other people that I agree with, right? Be independent like me and all the other people that I think like. So really what they're saying is, I want you to become a different kind of dependent thinker, like a different kind of communal interdependent thinker who's in conversation with other people. And what, what, what he's talking about in this book is a reality that we see in Scripture, and even Joseph talked about it, that none of us is a pure individual. Like, none of us is isolated from other people in the way we experience the world, the, the vocabulary we use, you know, the, the clothes we wear. Um, all of us are deeply interdependent, and we don't just belong to ourselves. We don't just belong to God, although, you know, those who have put their faith in Jesus do belong to God. Uh, but we also belong to one another. And part of the process of, of healing our thinking and renewing our minds is learning how to think rightly in community with other people, to align yourself and to, to put, plant yourself in the right community of people who can help direct your thinking and form your thinking in line with the truth. 
uh, to, to meet a group of people who are telling the truth about the way the world actually is, so that you can grow up in the truth. Now, if you weren't persuaded by Alan Jacobs in his book, you would be persuaded if you simply looked at a toddler, because you notice this, this, um, this communal way of thinking and interacting with the world from the earliest age with toddlers. So I'm looking at Parker and Karen. Noah just turned two, is that what you said? Okay, so probably at a very young age, uh, Noah starts toddling around. You know, she may still be doing this. Toddling around and bumps, uh, you know, her head, bumps her elbow on a piece of furniture or, you know, God forbid a parent's knee or something like that. Who knows? And feels discomfort. What's the toddler immediately going to do? They're going to look up at the faces of the people that God has put around them. Because something's happening inside them. They're they're feeling feelings that they do not know how to understand. They never felt before. Discomfort, distress, pain, and they don't know how to interpret them. They don't know how to interpret this experience. So they look up to the faces of those around them. And for the faces of those who are in community with them, who are their caregivers, are present, engaged, attentive. They're going to look to those faces. And whatever they see on those faces is going to help them interpret what's on their insides. So if the faces of the people around them, the caregivers around them, are freaking out, like, you bumped your knee. This is the worst thing in the world. The, co- the child is going to understandably freak out. But if the faces are, you know, non-anxious, engaged, present, the child's going to think, this isn't that big a deal. I can actually deal with this. This is okay. With that in mind, the fact that none of us think entirely to ourselves and that God uh, has made us in such a way that um, we make sense of our own experiences by looking at the faces of those around us. With that truth in mind, I want to ask this question. When you fall and bump your knee, scrape your elbow, spiritually, ethically, morally, when you sin, When you fail, when you screw up, and you look up to the face of Almighty God, what does his face look like when it's staring back at you? Is he present? Is he attentive? And if so, what does the look on his face say? That's the question that I think John is trying to answer for us in this passage. You see, John wrote 1 John to a group of young Christians in the first century Uh, who are trying to sort out the truth about God from errors and superstitions and trying to sort out what a true community of followers of Jesus looked like in the face of all these other counterfeit communities that were existing in the early church, in the the, the days of the early church. So John is saying from from the, the, the outset, this is how you distinguished the true God from false gods. This is how you distinguish true Christian community from false Christian community. And he's going to talk about the true biblical God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, his character, uh, I think from two directions that I want us to look at. First, the true God, Jesus Christ, and sin. And then second, the true God, Jesus Christ, and sinners. Who is Jesus Christ in relation to sin, and who is Jesus Christ in relation to sinners? Okay? 
So the first part, Jesus Christ in relation to sin. This is the first section. It starts in uh, verse 5 all the way down to verse 10 of chapter 1. Who is Jesus Christ in relationship to sin? To put it another way, how does Jesus feel about sin? About darkness? About evil? About everything that defaces and distorts his good creation? How does Jesus feel about it? From the very outset, he reminds us something. John, John wants us to focus our eyes on, on the character of God in relationship to sin. And this is what he says. This is the message. This, is, this, is what, this has been the old message. This is, we heard at the beginning. There's no new news in terms of the gospel here for him. He's saying, uh, this has always been the message. God is light, verse 5, and in him is no darkness at all. What he is saying is God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, has existed before the foundations of the world from eternity past and will continue to exist without variation or change all the way in, you know, to infinity without any defect, without any moral failure, without any slip-up, without any change. God is perfectly holy perfect light. Light in the Bible represents knowledge. It represents purity, but also it represents beauty. You know, sometimes in our culture, we can think, um, uh, especially I think when I was not a believer, I would hear the word holiness and I would think this kind of antiseptic Clorox bleach kind of thing. Holiness in the Bible is not this antiseptic quality. It, it is beauty. Holiness is, is purity and goodness and delightfulness. So, like, imagine a being who is pure goodness, pure beauty, pure truth, pure light. That is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, imagine <laughs> what it would be like for a being who is pure goodness, truth, beauty, to enter into this fallen world. Can you imagine what that would have been like for Jesus? Completely radically committed to the truth for him to hear a lie. Completely committed to the dignity of human beings, to hear someone um, gossiped about, to hear s someone insulted or put down. Can you imagine how that would have struck him? One of the things that um, I notice every single year with my kids is uh, the first time we go to the beach, which this year was actually later than I would have preferred. First time we go to the beach, uh, my daughter always wants to bring goggles, which as like a beach person, I think that's like a big faux pas. You're not supposed to bring goggles to the beach, but whatever. I'm a patient parent. I try to be. <laughs> So uh, anyways, so my daughter always brings goggles to the beach. Why? Because the first couple times you get in the water, what do you notice? Man, it is salty. You, you get, for the first time, it, you know, if you haven't been in the water for a couple months, you jump in the ocean and immediately you're like, it stings so bad. And my daughter would say to me, Dad, I think the water's saltier than it was last year. 
it feels saltier than it felt in you know, September last year. And why is that? Well, it's because in September of last year, she was used to it. She was acclimated to it. She'd been in the water all summer, right? So her eyes were used to it. But when she wasn't used to it, immediately she's aware of it. It stings. You know, for like our college students who are moving into town, uh, that a lot of them are moving in next week, and some of them have never lived in the, the Cape Fear region before. And something's going to happen in like September, October, where the wind is just right, and there's going to be a whiff of something coming from Regalwood. You all know what I'm talking about. If you've lived in Wilmington in the fall and in the winter for any amount of time, you know what I'm talking about because, and I'm sorry if you're associated with the paper mill at Regalwood, God bless you for the work you do, but that place is smelly. And this whiff will come along the breeze. And if you've never been in Wilmington before, you think something has died in the city. What is going on? But all of us who have grown up here and lived here for a while, we're like, ah, oh, that's just the paper mill. It's no big deal. And we don't even notice it anymore. Why? We're acclimated to it. Y'all, Jesus was never acclimated to sin. Jesus was never used to it. Every time he encountered sin, darkness, violence, it stung. He felt it. One of the things, if you notice, if you look at the heart of Jesus... All throughout the Gospels, one thing you notice about the heart of Jesus is that it was constantly breaking, constantly sensitive to the sin, to the failure, to the darkness, to the depravity, to the deformity of this fallen world. So what happens when you have a being whose heart is totally committed to this creation and totally breaking all the time for the ways that it's been twisted and distorted by sin? When, when that perfect being encounters imperfect people, sinners, who are actively contributing to the problem, who by their very presence in the world are making it a darker and a more distorted place. How does a holy God feel about sinners? We know how a holy God feels about sin. I mean, he is utterly against sin. There's no darkness at all in him. God has no fellowship with sin. John is going to great lengths to say that. So, and, and this protects us from a couple errors. The first error is this. Thinking that we can uh, have fellowship with God and continue to walk in sin. That basically we can say, yeah, I belong to God. I'm one of God's people and I have fellowship with him. My life is joined to him inseparably. And also, it kind of doesn't matter what I do. It, you know, it, the way I spend my money, the way I speak, uh, the way I think about my desires, uh, none of that really matters to God. He's not bothered by any of that. Uh, John says, if you say that, uh, you're a fool. You're deceived. God is utterly holy. Um, he does not love sin. He does not condone sin. Um, and the other error that it prevents us from making, if we're, if we're really focusing on the holiness of God, is this. In the light of God's holiness, we actually see our own sin, weakness, and failure more clearly. So the other error is that it, I would call it the religious person error, <laughs> which is, you know, you come to God and you go, God, aren't we the best? I mean, you're holy, I'm holy. You love the Bible. I love the Bible. You know, and it's, 
It's other people that are the problem, not me. What would John say about that? If you say you have no sin, you lie. <laughs> and you're calling God a liar. And that shows you've never really seen him. You've never really encountered him. His truth hasn't really penetrated into your heart because you don't see who you really are. You're a desperately needy person. Don't think sin doesn't matter and don't think you've never sinned or you don't still continue to struggle with sin. For people who struggle with sin, who contribute to the brokenness in the world, even in tiny, imperceptible ways, how does God feel about you? How does God feel about us? To put it another way, when you sin, when you do that thing that you said you wouldn't do, that you know contributes to the, to the darkness and the brokenness of the world, when you give in to that desire that you know is destructive and you look up at the face of a holy God who is perfect light, perfect goodness, perfect beauty, what does his face look like? Listen to this. Verse 2. This is who Jesus Christ is in relationship to sin. John's saying, I'm writing these things so you may not sin, but listen to this. If anyone does sin, which we know we will do, right? Because he said, everybody sins. If you say you haven't sinned, you're a liar. If anyone does sin, I, my ears are already you know, perking up because I, mean, I do that. I sin. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Who is Jesus Christ in relationship to sinners? He is for sinners. Jesus Christ is an advocate for sinners. Y'all, that blew my mind when I read that um, for a couple reasons. First, if, if I... Um, if you had asked me to paraphrase this passage, <laughs> what I would probably say is, um, you know, hey, sin's bad. God's totally opposed to sin. Don't sin, okay? But if you do sin, here's what you can do. Confess, repent. And if you confess and repent, God will welcome you with open arms for everyone who confesses, everyone who repents. Jesus Christ is the propitiation for your sins, I've got good news for anyone who repents. Okay, that's true. Like, that's the gospel. If you've never heard that, for anyone who repents, anyone who puts their simple faith in Jesus Christ, your sins can be forgiven. You can be reunited with a holy God, filled with his Holy Spirit, and your life can be united to him for the rest of your life in a way that he'll never leave you or forsake you. But that's not what John says here. John doesn't say, I have good news for you if you repent. He says, I have good news for you when you sin. He says, when, Jesus, when is Jesus your advocate? Jesus Christ is your advocate even before you repent. He's your advocate when you sin. This is mind-blowing, right? But if you think about it, where does repentance even come from? Where does faith even come from? Who gives a dead sinner's heart the faith and the sense to realize what they've done is wrong and to turn to God and repent? Who gives you even the, the, the awareness of his holiness and his mercy and of his moral law to, to think, 
I shouldn't have done that, and I need to turn back to God. Did you do that on your own? The Bible says, no, we're dead in our sins and trespasses. So who did that? Jesus did that. Jesus advocated for you into repentance. Jesus loved you into repentance. Jesus embraced you and put his hands on your dead heart and pumped it back to life so that you could understand where you are and where you stand and your radical need for him so you could turn to him. That is good news. When is he your advocate? When you sin. Man, oh man. That is one of my favorite things to share with college students, by the way. Because um, for a lot of us, you know, college is the first time that you really experience um, a longer leash. <laughs> you really experience uh, a quite a bit of freedom. Uh, some of the consequences for your decisions feel, you know, far off and in the distance. And so, consequently, um, college is a time for a lot of students, especially that grow up in, in the church or in covenant families, where you really kind of get to some sinning. You know, like you really, you, you, you really fall and you screw up and, and you try things that you're kind of interested in, but you know you shouldn't be interested in. And I can't tell you how many times I sit with students across from a table at a coffee shop or in a dining hall or something and they say, I, I feel so far from God because of what I've done. And one of my favorite things to say to them is, do you know how close to God you are right now? Do you know how near to you he is? Your very regret, your sorrow over what you've done is evidence that God has not forsaken you. Dead people don't feel regret. People who are forsaken by God don't feel sorry for what they've done. God is drawing you to himself. Do you see how much he loves you right now? That is like the best news I can possibly offer students as their pastor. Man, I hope that's good news for you. Um, okay, let's look at who this advocate is. <laughs> he says, our advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. What better advocate could you have than Jesus Christ, the righteous one? Um, when, uh, we took some students on a mission trip to London uh, with a church planning organization called Surge that does uh, church plants in all these boroughs around London, working with immigrant populations. It was incredible. So we did that in spring break, and one of the things we did on the last day of our trip to London with our students is we had a free day in London. So a bunch of us went to go see plays in the West End. And I'm kind of a theater nerd, so I saw um, To Kill a Mockingbird in London which was so cool. And it was, um, Paul, you'll love this because I know you love the West Wing, um, Aaron Sorkin's adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird. So if you like the West Wing and you like To Kill a Mockingbird, it's like the perfect mix. The worst Southern accents I have ever heard in my life. <laughs> but it was really, really cool. So we go to see this play. And the thing I didn't realize about the story is I forgot this scene. There's a scene, you know, where there's, there's this man, Tom, who's been acu wrongly accused, black man has been wrongly accused of, um, uh, of uh, a crime. And the, the town, the, you know, the jury's completely biased, and, you know, he, he's got really no hope, and the judge understands that he's not guilty. So the judge, under the cover of darkness, who's, the judge is going to try this case, goes to the defense attorney 
Atticus Finch's house. And he, sa- he pleads with him and he says, you're the only one that could possibly speak up for this man. You're the only one who could prove his case. And he's begging with Atticus. He's saying, I need to call you off, you know, off the reserves. You need to come in. I need to put you in the courtroom. I need to put you in the game so that you can speak up for this man. You're the only one who can do it. I think that's what, that's what John's talking about when he talks about Jesus being our advocate. That he's the only one who can speak on a sinner's behalf convincingly. Why? Because he fully paid for all our sins with his precious blood. So he has the Father's ear. You know, nobody could, find, could, could in, in, ever find fault with Jesus' argument. He's going to put an airtight case for your acquittal. And he's going to put forth his own perfect life as evidence. And here's the thing that's even better than To Kill a Mockingbird. You know, um, Atticus Finch was arguing on behalf of an innocent man who was wrongly accused. Jesus Christ is offering on behalf of guilty people who are rightly accused. And his argument is going to be so strong and the payment that he offers in your place is going to be so persuasive that eternal justice is going to be satisfied because Jesus advocated for you, not just with his words, but with his perfect life. That is powerful. He is the perfect advocate for you and I. And who is he an advocate to? This is, I think this is incredible. Later on in, the gospel, in uh, this letter, this is what John says. And I think this is what we most need to hear. Who does Jesus speak up to? He speaks up on our behalf, but he speaks up, I think most importantly, to our own hearts. This is what John says in chapter 3. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and we will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. Jesus is saying to our own self-condemning hearts, you belong to God. Your life is atoned for. You are united to me. I will never let you go. And when our hearts don't believe it, Jesus speaks the truth to our forgetful hearts again and again. He keeps pouring the truth of the gospel into the leaky containers of our hearts because he knows that we need it and he's patient with sinners like us. Okay, if, if we get this deep down in our bones, how would this change the way we live? A couple ways. One, it would really enable us to be a people who actually pray for our enemies who actually actively love the people that we think are doing things that are making the world a worse place, <laughs> which is a totally countercultural thing. Notice, we see Jesus isn't like pro-sin, but he is pro-sinners. When Jesus is advocating for you and I, he's not condoning the things you do or agreeing with the things you do, but he's fighting for your good. And that creates a certain kind of posture for a Christian in the world, does it not? It's totally countercultural. Because in the world, especially online, what we do is we rejoice when our enemies suffer. Jesus is saying, pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Speak up for them. Advocate for them. That's what Jesus did when we were his enemies. And it made us his friends. So 
How are we supposed to relate to a world that is broken? We're supposed to advocate for it. Uh, for our college students, I mean, this is what we try to do all the time. We try to say, listen, God has not put you on this college campus to be its accuser. God has not put you in uh, your neighborhood to be your neighbor's accuser before God. God has not put you in your family to be your parents or your spouse's accuser before God. God has not put you in your church to be your church's accuser before God, but to be their advocate. Who are the people in your life that you find it most hard to speak up for, to work for, and to actively love? Pray that the truth of the gospel of God's advocating love for his enemies would work its way into that relationship and give you something concrete to do to demonstrate that you really do care, that you really do love that person. And if you don't feel love for them, guess what? I've got great news for you. The Holy Spirit changes your heart. So pray that he would change your heart and soften your heart to those you disagree with, your enemies. Finally, uh, there's, I, I think this, this is, one of my favorite pictures. What would that do to an entire church if an entire group of people was known as a group of people who um, loved their enemies, who prayed for, who advocated for those who, who were standing against them? I think someone who walked in the door, regardless of what they believed, would immediately be aware of two things. There's something different here that they do not understand, and these people really do love them, and they want to come back. Uh, There's a church in Philadelphia called 10th Presbyterian, and they have uh, this little saying written uh, on the walls outside of the church, or so I've heard. This is uh, from a man named Ray Ortland, who's a pastor in Nashville. And he took this saying, this man, uh, Ray Ortland, and he uses it as a call to worship at his church. Listen to this. This is the call to worship that he reads every week. To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who fear worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, this church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus Christ, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the guilty, the justifier of the inexcusable, the friend of sinners. Welcome. What would it do to get this truth about the advocacy of Jesus Christ deep into your heart? I think it would make a church community a place of welcome. It would make our homes a place of welcome. It would make our schedules and our wallets a place of welcome for needy people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, would you help us to be a welcoming people? Would you help us to be a people who speak up on behalf of those who disagree with us and even who we disagree with? Lord, um, help us to bear the suffering and the pain that, that comes from living in a fallen world. Lord, you bared it. You bore it. Lord, help us to not be afraid of having our hearts broken. We love you. We thank you for what you've done. Transform us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name.